Hi, and welcome to the Women in Security podcast. This is the second episode, and my guest is Tammy Hawkins, whom a lot of you would know from her time with MasterCard. And I was fortunate enough to sit down with her before she left Ireland to move to California, where she takes on her new role with Blizzard Entertainment. This is a really interesting episode where we touched on various different subjects, such as social branding, cultural differences, um, and also taking the leap of faith. It's a really interesting conversation that I hope all of you will enjoy. Um, on that note, a lot of you also know that this is a very new project for me. So I'm learning as I go and I'm working on the production and post editing on my own. So one thing that I only found out after the recording was how echoey the recording was i've tried to remedy that so hopefully it doesn't affect your audio experience too much but i do hope you enjoy this episode because i certainly did so we have with us today tammy hawkins in the studio tammy welcome thank you very much Lisa. it's very nice to be here with you absolutely delighted. I am such a fan of podcasts. So this is a, a life achievement unlocked to be here with yes. you right now. <laughs> um, and I have to say a big thank you because I know you're in the midst of moving to US, right? You recently took on a new role with Blizzard. Yes. We have to talk about that. What an exciting time for you. I know, um, man, it's it's uh, beyond belief. I am just absolutely delighted. Uh, Blizzard Entertainment is uh, a best-in-class gaming company, and I am just so excited about joining that company. I'm so excited about moving to California. I've always had a dream of wanting to live in California, even as a young girl. So, um, But it's also bittersweet because I, I moved to Ireland in 2016 and I've been in Ireland for, for almost three years now and the people are amazing. The tech industry here is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I felt like Ireland really welcomed me with open arms and um, a bit, bit sad to go, mm-hmm. but in the same token, really looking forward to, you know, going, going back to America and certainly California and just continuing with new experiences in my life. Anytime I get a little too comfortable, I like to shake things up. That's just how I am. <laughs> and for people who don't know about, you know, yourself, you were with MasterCard for a long time, right? And you decided to take a break after 10 years with them. We'll talk about this later. But how did the role with Blizzard come about? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Uh, I, I like to tell this story and I certainly have told it a, a few times to some folks that mentor with me because I think uh, it's, it's a good example of what networking and really working on your personal brand, both internally somewhere you work as well as externally, uh, why it's so important and how it can pay off. So um, I'm a big proponent with my mentors and mentees of say what you're going to do, do what you said, say what you did. Uh, so a lot of times when I'm getting ready for uh, some type of event, I, I like to speak at a lot of different industry events about security and technology and experiences of being a, a woman in tech. Um, before I speak at a conference, I'll post about it to try to drum up interest and let people know that it's happening. Um, while I'm at the, the events, I'll usually post pictures and kind of talk about, you know, who's there and then ultimately, you know, try to, to share how the experience went for myself. So, you know, say what you're going to do, do what you said, say what you did. Um, I had 
done that. And I also post regularly about different industry topics. One, to keep myself abreast of different industry topics um, because IT is constantly changing and I think everyone needs to be constantly learning. But also to, to put forward my brand. Um, I try to post articles um, on my primary um uh, Social media sites that I keep uh, professional are LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, I post, you know, different industry articles, and then I also post about different um, things that I'm participating in. So um, I've been doing this for a matter of years. It's been one of my ways of strategically getting myself out into the industry and getting people to know what I'm about. Um, I like to say to, to people that mentor with me, who would you be more prone to hire if you were a hiring manager? Someone that had a proven strong track record and a brand that you can see it was authentic by looking at how they presented themselves and how people have interacted with them online over the past X amount of years, or someone who has totally no social media history. If, if everything else is equivalent between those two candidates, who are you going to feel more comfortable with? Probably the one that you can get familiarity with them. You can figure out what they're about online um, and, and see the positive brand or positive impacts they've had in the industry. So I put a lot of work into that over the past few years, and um, it was very interesting. I, I had chosen to go explore other opportunities. I had recently posted on LinkedIn about a conference I had spoken at. Um, someone in Ireland happened to like that post. Uh, a lady who works at Blizzard uh, in Irvine, California, is originally from Ireland. She happened to see this other person in Ireland who was a friend of hers, a connection on LinkedIn, had liked my post. She looked at the post and said, well, that looks interesting, kind of like what she said there. She looked at my profile and said, that is what we need. She um, sent on my profile to their recruitment team. It turns out Blizzard had been uh, attempting to recruit for a particular position. Um, they wanted a diverse candidate slate. Uh, they'd been looking for certain skills and um, abilities, and they felt like my profile was really strong. So they reached out to me. This dream job that I am absolutely delighted that I landed into me, which is just amazing, right? And I think it speaks to the importance of taking a little time out for yourself. Um, I'm not on LinkedIn and Twitter regularly. It looks like I am. I actually have a hack for that that I love sharing with people. Um, I use an app called Buffer. Uh, Buffer, you can link to whichever social media accounts that you want to. Um, when I see a news article that I really like about the industry that represents my brand values, or I'm speaking at a conference and, and I want to post about it, I will go to Buffer, I'll create one post, um, and then I'm able to share that post across multiple social media channels with just a couple of clicks. And also, I can schedule when I want that to post. So um, I can create content on the weekend. I'll be drinking coffee on a Saturday morning. I'll be reading through LinkedIn. I'll be reading through industry articles, TechCrunch, uh, you know, all those fun things. And I will add to my buffer queue while I'm drinking that coffee. And then I'll have posts scheduled out for the next few weeks, um, just through a couple of hours of effort on a Saturday morning. It looks like I'm on these social media content feeds every day. I'm not. Um, but doing that, uh, scheduling posts like that proactively can keep, you don't want to go over the top with it, right? I post one to two times a day. I post at different times per day. That's, that's my buffer schedule so that I'm not annoying people by dumping, you know, 10 things in their news feed all at once. Um, 
but keeping your name, your brand, your values top of mind for people by having a couple of posts per day, especially people interact with those posts, that's when you start becoming an influencer online. And that's what can lead to its opportunities. Uh, this job opportunity was one example. I've also had opportunities of people uh, approaching me for speaking. Uh, you know, I spoke at Dublin Tech Summit this year. Uh, I spoke at the EU Cyber Summit last year in, in Dublin. Um, I've been approached. I was flown to Germany earlier this year to speak at a conference um, because people saw my brands online. They saw I spoke at other conferences and, and it seemed successful. So, hey, let me invite you to mine. So I think it's really important um, to constantly be building your brand. You never know what can happen tomorrow. Uh, I chose to choose, you know, uh, I chose a different path to take um, in my career. And I found great opportunities by doing the social branding. You, you could, you know, lose your job tomorrow. You could uh, want to get on the speaking circuit. If you're proactively kind of building this brand, um, great opportunities can come about so that you can uh, continue to, to make yourself more known across the industry and find great, great opportunities for yourself. That's brilliant. And listening to you talk about, you know, being at different summits, one would not think that you are an introvert by nature. <laughs> In one of the many articles that you've given, you said that when you first started out at MasterCard, you were an introvert. Yeah. Right. How, tell us about the journey with MasterCard and how you got to being this confident woman that you are today. How did that all happen? Well, uh, first I'll say, you know, as a lot of women do, I, I struggle with confidence. Um, but it, I think it is important to, to present yourself as confident, um, especially when you're in managerial type roles. People don't frankly want to work for people that don't have confidence. So it's important that you you do find how to have confidence in yourself. There's going to be days where maybe you're not feeling it. Um, days where I'm not feeling it. I find my peer mentors. I find, you know, my, my mentors that are at all different levels and have a conversation with them about what I'm feeling about. Um, because often our lack of confidence is just in our head. It has nothing to do with our actual skill. And it's important to get out of your head and sometimes go have a reality check with some of your friends. Don't ask them for a boost up. You know, I don't, I don't want anyone to, um, you know, give me fluffery about, uh, you know, what I am doing well or not. I, I want real feedback. You know, I'm feeling self-conscious in this way. Um, what do you think, you know, how could I do better in that? So learning, um, to ask for frank feedback and accept frank feedback and not get defensive. Um, that's been surprisingly part of what helped me be less of an introvert, um, being comfortable with getting feedback, being comfortable with knowing that not everyone's going to like me. I don't like everyone I meet. That's life. But knowing that you're working as hard as you can, that you will take on feedback, you won't get offended by it. You'll understand people have perceptions. Perceptions are not always reality, but perceptions do matter. And um, taking in those perceptions and just trying to be your best self is, is a, a great way to focus on building your confidence and being a bit less of an introvert. Um, what really opened my eyes was as I was working at MasterCard and especially as I had aspirations to move into management, you know, when I started at MasterCard, there were about 3000 employees. By the time I left, they were somewhere around 16,000 plus employees, huge amount of growth in that company. And even at 3000 employees, no one employee got anything done on their own when it came to fully delivering a solution. 
you always had to, you know, if you were a development team, you had to work with infrastructure teams to get the actual rapid stack boxes that you needed to put your software on. Uh, you're probably going to need to engage security teams to make sure that the infrastructure is secure, your, your development uh, code is secure, that the overall solution is secure. You're probably going to have to involve groups uh, like customer service delivery so that they understand the product and they can talk to the customers, uh, you know, eloquently about the product and how to use it. I, there's a whole series of people that you're going to have to deal with. And as I was an individual contributor, that was important that I knew people to call and, and know how to get answers to questions I, I was unsure of, how to bring parties together so that, you know, if there were a few people that were in disagreement about how to design a particular solution that, you know, I could bring them in a room and facilitate a conversation to help us get it done. That all starts with knowing who to get in the room in the first place. So it became very apparent to me um, that it was important as an individual contributor and certainly that it was going to be important as a manager. So um, I gave myself a challenge because I am an introvert by nature. What makes me happy where I get my energy is sitting in a quiet room, reading a book, having some tea. That's that's my happy place. Um, you have to step out of that at times and to really help your company get more done and yourself get more done. Um, I can sit in the corner by myself and work all day and I can probably get a lot of individual contributor tasks done, but design the best solution? No. I need other people's input for that. So the challenge I gave myself was, um, self, you're going to go to one event a month. Uh, many of them were internal MasterCard events to begin with, and then I started to branch out to external events. So uh, at MasterCard, they had what are called business resource groups, BRGs, and they re represent different um, you know, customer segments, let's say. So there was a women's leadership network. There was a pride network that focused on LGBT. Um, there's uh, networks for Latinos, um, just, just all kinds of different networks. So I started going to some of those meetups. Um, and there were technical talks at MasterCard. I would go to those meetups. And what I would do at each meetup, my, my challenge to myself, you cannot leave the event and you cannot go sit in a corner until you have introduced yourself to at least two people, right? That's doable. Two people. Just go introduce yourself. And what I would do when I went to introduce myself is I would say, hello, my name is Tammy Hawkins. I'm vice president of cyber and intelligence. I work on products like identity check and uh, decision intelligence and uh, consumer controls. You know, I, I would list off some of the products that I work on. Who are you? What department do you work in? How long have you been with MasterCard? I ask that question specifically and I offer that information about myself specifically so that I can start thinking, oh, we've been. She just introduced herself. She's in the data warehouse at MasterCard. I know that I have a project coming up in a few weeks where I'm going to have a lot of questions for Data Warehouse. We've been so nice to meet you. I would love to pick your brain about some of the procedures in the Data Warehouse. Could I set up 15, 30 minutes, buy you a coffee in the next week or two and just ask you a few questions? I have yet to have a single person turn me down when I ask them if I could buy them a free coffee. And almost everyone can find 15 to 30 minutes in their schedule. Like, and I'll tell them if we want to do it over lunch, if you want to do it, I'll buy you breakfast, you know, try to make it really convenient for whomever I'm asking to spend time with. Um, you know, I did that for a year. By the end of the year, I knew 20 to 30 new people. 
after you do that for 10 years, and it's a bit like a small snowball. As soon as you meet one people, you start meeting three to four people that are in their group if you approach a group of people, right? Uh, by the end of my career, uh, I knew thousands of people at MasterCard, and thousands of people certainly knew me. Um, and part of that, too, was because of my, my social brand. Uh, if they heard my name at MasterCard, we made that you know informal meet and greet. They may go check out my LinkedIn to kind of see what I'm about. Um, so it's, it's all cyclical, and it all builds on itself. Uh, as you start to, to get to know more and more people within your company. And then I started going to industry meetups, you know, OWASP, um, different security technical type meetups, Java user groups, um, different things of that nature. One, to improve my technical ability. I think it's super important to go to regular meetups, continue to read different industry information online so that you're keeping your knowledge crisp, but also so that I could start making connections in the industry. And when I started doing that, um, that led to invites to come speak at different groups or to come to different companies and just, you know, speak in front of a, a group of folks there because companies love bringing in folks from other companies so that we can you know iterate on ideas and find different ways to approach problems um, so it's a really great way to build your network um, by the time I went to leave MasterCard. Uh, you know, I had multiple friends in every department. Uh, if you know someone on my team, what I always told them was, if you're waiting more than you know 18 to 24 hours for someone to turn something around for you and, and we need it, let me know. I got a friend to call, right? Um, and that's really important, especially as you start working in larger organizations. There's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of processes where you know you have to wait seven days to do this, and then ten days to do this, and then another five days to do this, where it can really slow down the delivery of, of your product getting into um, production and getting out into the market. If you know how to um, efficiently get beyond some of these barriers, then you're going to deliver more products and more value for your company. So it's important to know how to play the game and to know the players so that you can play your best game. And that brings me to my next question. You've built up such a strong network. Everyone, I would say almost everyone in MasterCard knows you, right? It must have been really difficult to make that decision to move on from MasterCard. Yeah. How and why did you decide to do that? Yeah, it was a very, very difficult decision. Um, you know, when I started at MasterCard, uh, it was called risk services at the time, <laughs> you know, uh, 10, 11 years ago, MasterCard realized this fraud stuff is, is only going to get tougher, not better in the financial industry. So we need a, a department dedicated to it. Started as risk services, you know, many years later, it became cyber and intelligence. And what that role was, um, was focused on using artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to understand we have thousands of different data elements that come in every time you dip, tap, swipe your card, um, telling us about which store you're buying from, where is that store located. Um, and, and we compare a lot of this information against uh, your typical spending pattern. Um, you know, Lee Finn is a very affluent card holder. It's typical for her to go out on a weekend and, you know, buy a, a car or go on a big vacation because that's her life that she leads and, and great for her. We want her to be able to, to spend the way that she wants. Tammy is a less affluent card holder. She's only spending, you know, a couple hundred dollars 
on her cards per week um, for life's necessities. If someone goes out and buys a car this weekend on her card, we hope it stopped because that is definitely not Tammy's behavior. So part of it's understanding the um, profile of the card user, what their spending patterns may look like. Um, and also we, we would pattern against um, confirmed fraud, different stakeholders that uh, use the MasterCard network, be that, you know, store merchants, uh, banks or issuers, um, different governments. All of these entities have different needs when it comes to the type of security risks and fraud that they face. Um, different models for for uh, how much they would accept risk, um, and also um, different information that they can provide to Mastercard so that we can could tell those stakeholders when something may look like fraud or may not look like fraud. Um, so then, you know, the stakeholders feeding in what fraud looks like helped us pattern that. So Mastercard had a great a really great approach to artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, they acquired recently uh, Brighterian, which is a best-in-class artificial intelligence and machine learning company. Also New Data, which is a behavioral biometric um, company, which was a really fascinating space. Um, not just, you know, who you are, but uh, how you act is becoming another phase of authentication. So, um, about halfway through uh, my journey at MasterCard, when we had been at it for five or six years, we had a great way of uh, predicting potential fraud happening right now based on past historical patterns that we understood. What began to happen more frequently um, was what we would call at MasterCard flash fraud. And that is, you know, a lot of days at work for me was, was playing whack-a-mole. We would whack down three fraudsters, um, you know, knowing what their patterns were, but then there'd be, you know, 30 more that would be popping up with new approaches. And as soon as the new approach is found, fraudsters talk to one another, then they all start trying to take that approach. So it was a constant arms race of, okay, we, we shut down all these ways that they can attack us. Oh, look, here's 40 more. Let's go attack those. And using past historical patterns is not fast enough for that. Um, you know, this really opened our eyes when, um, and this is publicly available information, there was a very coordinated attack where um, sometimes attacks are, are funded by millions of dollars, potentially by um, mafias or drug rings or, you know, folks on the black market, sometimes nation states. Um, these attacks are really sophisticated. And what happened in uh, this particular attack, um, fraudsters had organized um, and had obtained information. They had insiders working in an acquiring bank where um, they had gotten prepaid card numbers. Prepaid cards typically have very low spending amounts. Um, these fraudsters were intelligent enough to know that these cards may not have been monitored as closely at that time, given those low spending amounts. They took advantage of that um, particular attack vector. They, from an insider perspective, raised the floor limit. So instead of your prepaid card having a $100 limit, they raised it to many, many, many millions of dollars. They then um, used very cheap equipment that unfortunately you can buy online pretty easily to create uh, fake credit cards um, using those numbers that they had stolen that they knew had been increased for very large spending amounts. The organizers of that attack then said to the mules, which is what 
they call the people that are actually the poor schmucks on the street that go risk their life and limb and freedom to, to go uh, do crime. They issued to the mules uh, all of these fake plastic cards and said it exactly this time on this day, uh, and they coordinated the the mules to hit ATMs that are in um, tourist areas along the coasts because they know those ATMs tend to hold more money. They issued them a series of cards and said, this day, this time, we want you to hit all these ATMs, and we want you to drain them of as much money as fast as you can because the fraudsters know that when something like this happens, alarm bells are going to go off and we're going to try to stop as fast as we can. Um, unfortunately, the alarm bells for that particular attack didn't go off until about 24, 48 hours into the attack. And the fraudsters got away with about 40, $45 million in that 24 to 48 hours. It was a very well-coordinated attack. It was at that time that um, we had been working on some solutions to already address this that uh, we were able to, to utilize directly after this attack and stop further attacks from happening. And that was uh, a method to be able to push out API calls and different um, data analysis procedures within five minutes of being aware of an attack once MasterCard would understand the data elements to be able to identify the attack. then. We put those rules out into um, production to stop the, the bleeding immediately. So um, other fraudsters became very aware of this initial attack because it made the news. Um, there were lots of attacks very similar afterward uh, where MasterCard was able to stop hundreds of millions of dollars of loss um, over over the, the following years, um, being able to have a method to stop flash fraud. So. I had an amazing career at MasterCard. I started as a senior business analyst worked my way up to vice president of cyber and intelligence um, through my own hard work, certainly, but also very much through the investments of MasterCard. They believed in me. Um, they invested in me. They offered me amazing opportunities, uh, rotating me around to different roles so that I would get experience, providing the opportunity to move and work in, in Dublin, Ireland, uh, which was fantastic for me and has grown me a lot. Um, so it was a very difficult decision. Uh, you know, earlier this year, I had been contemplating my career. I had been a vice president at MasterCard for about four and a half years. Uh, I, I really enjoyed what I was doing. It's very satisfying to stop robbers in their tracks, the digital, digital robbers in their tracks. But um, I also was contemplating, okay, I've been at this company for 11 years. Uh, I, you know, I've learned a lot here, but I'm also starting to wonder what, you know, how do other companies approach problems? Uh, I think you can learn a lot by approaching uh, problems different ways and seeing how different companies solve them. Uh, I was pretty notorious before MasterCard for going to different jobs every two to four years uh, because I, I have an insatiable appetite for learning. I love doing new things. And I'm also, um, I like to say I get the itch. Uh, anytime I feel like I'm getting too comfortable in a job, I'm pretty notorious for kind of throwing everything up in the air and just doing something totally different. And, and I had the opportunity to do that at MasterCard many, many times, which is why I, I stayed there for over a decade because it was fantastic. I was learning new things every day and able to do different jobs every couple of years within MasterCard because it's such a big company. But uh, a decade later, I'm like, one, I want to prove to myself that I can do things in other industries. Um, I've been in financial tech for, you know, I've been in a couple of financial tech jobs before MasterCard. So I've been in, in financial tech for a good while, um, which is fascinating. But I, I really wanted to challenge myself to do a complete different industry. And I thought, you know, taking my payments knowledge to another industry is going to be really valuable too, because most industries have to deal with payments if they have any kind of online presence. Um, 
I need the confidence in myself to make this decision. That was probably the toughest part. As you said, MasterCard was a family at this point. Uh, sincerely, like I, so many people that I had grown with over the past decade, and we had been great supporters of one another and mentors of one another. Uh, I'll be honest, my last couple of weeks, there were a lot of tears because there were so many people that I'm just so proud of and um, that I wanted to see grow more, right? But at some point, you have to decide what you need to do for yourself. And I felt like, you know, I'm at an age and in a place in my life. I personally don't have a partner. I don't have kids. I don't have debt. This was a point in my life where I said, if I don't take a risk on myself now and do something drastically different and take an opportunity to potentially fail, that's always an opportunity. If I don't take that opportunity now and you know fail fast in another industry and prove to myself whether I can do it or, or not, when the heck will I, right? I, I need to believe in myself and I needed to do this for myself to prove to myself of what else I can do and also to, to refresh myself. Um, you know, as I said, I'm kind of the type that's uh, disruptive. And when I feel like I'm getting too comfortable, I want to get uncomfortable again. And, you know, the last time I made myself very uncomfortable was three years ago when I moved to Ireland and I had taken a new job at that time. And um, I had never lived anywhere outside of St. Louis, Missouri. I just up and decided to move to Ireland. That was such a great move. I learned so much from it that I'm just so excited now to be at this point in my career where, you know, moving into the gaming industry, which, you know, I know a little bit about, not a lot, which is very exciting to me. Um, going into an artistic environment, which again, very different for me, very different environment from financial tech. When I walked into Blizzard's uh, office, I'm like, oh, this is so cool. It's just so different from what I experienced, right? Um, which is very refreshing to me. Uh, so I'm looking forward to moving to sunny California. Uh, not going to miss the Irish rain, but I am going to miss a lot of other things about Ireland. Um, but the good news is, uh, you know, in the new Blizzard role, um, I'm able to apply a, a lot of the experience that I have for MasterCard. Um, you know, in the new Blizzard role, there's uh, a need for artificial intelligence and machine learning skills. Um, which I'm, I'm looking forward to applying for my experience at MasterCard. And I'm going to have uh, at least a couple of teams here in Ireland. Uh, there's an office for Blizzard that's in Cork, Ireland, um, that has some fantastic folks working therein. So hopefully I'll be coming back to Ireland regularly and seeing, uh, seeing all my friends either for work or, or also for a personal, personal journey. So, um, the journey doesn't end here for Ireland for me, but, um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to the future. That is a lot of exciting times ahead. And one thing, you know, you kind of mentioned a few things over there, right? But one of the things that you mentioned was before you moved to Ireland, you've never been outside. Oh, you've obviously traveled, but you've never worked and lived outside. In one of the articles that you gave, you talked about the cultural differences, mm. how when you moved here, you realized that the way that people work was quite different. Being yeah. an American, you know, it's you guys tend to be louder, more <laughs> energetic, but you also gave a quote about while respecting the European culture, it's important to educate, you know, the other colleagues about the differences to get recognized, to, to work towards that promotion. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure. So uh, moving outside of America was probably the best way for me to learn about America. And, and I know that sounds funny, but when you're in the environment that you've always grown up in, you take things for granted and you don't realize how 
things that you and, and your folks around you, the things of how you do them can be very different to how others do do things in the world. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate in my in my 20s. I had a job with RGA Reinsurance Group of America. So delighted that I had that job in my early 20s. Um, I was an analyst and I was fortunate enough to get assigned to the international clients list um, where I was traveling around the world. This gal that's from St. Louis, Missouri and has literally never been out of St. Louis, Missouri at this point in her life. All of a sudden I'm being sent on trips to India and Taiwan and Australia, like blew my mind. Um, getting to meet these different cultures, getting to know uh, different approaches to work. Um, really helped me grow as a person and realize respect for other cultures, um, knowing how to approach different cultures and um, knowing that the American way is not always the right way, right? Um, moving outside of America, moving into Ireland. Um, when I when I first started working in the office, the, the most common thing that was said to me by, by my Irish coworkers, and it always makes me smile and laugh, and, and it was still said on my last day, like there were speeches that were given and people would call this out. They're like, you're so dang positive. Like, you're always smiling. You're always laughing. Um, you know, I think some of that comes from being an American. Uh, I think we're, we can be eternal optimists. I think um, it's a society where you're kind of raised to, to try to be optimistic. Um, it has its good and it's bad, right? Uh, you have to be careful to, especially I've found in, in European culture, channel that excitement, make sure you're, you're expressing it at the right time. Um, you know, I found European, especially, um, Irish, um, can, can sometimes be skeptical. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that you're sussing out if what folks are saying is is right and, and that you're a little more willing to challenge and, and have a discussion around, is this really the right thing to do versus just taking a smile and a wink and saying, okay, they seem happy about it. I'm going to follow along. Uh, I really appreciate the type of uh, conversation that happens here in Ireland. I think it's very healthy. Um, so yeah, I, <laughs> I, I can be a little boisterous at times and definitely my, my laugh was well known around the MasterCard office. They, they were probably a, a little more peaceful now that I left. But um, the other thing that I, I, you know, I really enjoyed was helping my Irish coworkers understand American culture. And while appreciating Irish culture, also helping them understand you, you can still be your, your Irish self, but also understand in certain circumstances, you need to channel a little bit of, you know, how an American might do it because you are working for an American multinational company, your raises, your promotions, um, you know, how your career may, may happen. A lot of that, you know, be it good, bad, otherwise is determined by folks that are senior management in, in the U S. And I like to use the adage of if a, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears about it, it will fall. If Tammy does amazing work in Dublin, Ireland, and nobody in the U.S. hears about it, did she do amazing work? Yeah, she did. But those folks that can control the promotions, the, the payments, you know, um, the opportunities, they didn't know about it. So um, I, I found in Ireland, and it's something that, you know, I appreciate and I think is is great about the Irish people is humility. I saw some of the best work being done in our Dublin, Ireland office. I'm like, this is amazing. 
have you shared this with other folks in America? And often it was, oh, no, nah, gosh, no, I no, no, I couldn't do that. No, but why not? <laughs> why don't you make a post about it on LinkedIn? Why don't we help get an article about it on, on the work intranet? So, you know, I would find... I would find that Irish humility uh, where, where people would be a little hesitant. And I said, listen, fair enough. You don't feel comfortable putting yourself forward and mentioning, you know, these accomplishments that you've done. Let me do it. I'll be your American cheerleader. <laughs> and so, you know, especially those that, that worked in my team or that uh, were mentees of mine that I, that I was helping mentor. Something that I really appreciate at this point in my career, one, because I've had other people do it for me that helps me get to where I am today, and two, because it just makes me happy, is lifting other people up. When I see that they've done a great job, I like being that cheerleader. I like lifting other people up and helping them get that visibility. And I think that's a responsibility that more managers need to take on, or and not even managers, just people around the company. You know, there's a great... Um, there's a great feature on LinkedIn where you can recognize someone for doing amazing work or being an amazing mentor. But it puts a little picture and you can say, thank you so much for doing whatever amazing thing you did, Leaf and Tan. Um, I love that feature. Doing something like that, whether it's internal at work or using one of your social media channels to be able to do that, lift those up around you. Uh, when you start doing that for other people, right, it starts happening all over the place. So I started doing that in the Dublin office when I'd see somebody doing amazing work and I knew they weren't going to toot their own horn. I would, you know, write a little article and get it onto the internet or I'd post something on LinkedIn because on LinkedIn, not only am I friends with thousands of people around MasterCard, I, I was friends with tens of thousands of people around the world. So um, it's a great way to give back. It's a great way to instill confidence in this individual that's doing fantastic work. And it's a great example to set forth. So hopefully the next time that person does great work, they might feel a little more okay and, and say they did that great work or more more importantly, their peers around them, whether they lift up their peer or a different peer saw what I did and they lift that person up, you start creating that great momentum within the office. And I was super happy, you know, three years later when I was leaving Ireland to, to hear people echoing, I'm so thankful that you taught me some of those skills. I'm so thankful that you lifted me up in that meeting and you said, you know, what a great job I did on that project. Thank you so much. It's rewarding to me to see other people be lifted up and, and visible for the great accomplishments that they have. And um, I think uh, folks in, in the Dublin office started realizing the importance of that for each other. Um, yeah. That is so important what you just said, right? I think a lot of times we get so sucked into just trying to do good for ourselves, doing focusing on our work that we forget that. You go into work every day. You're spending 12 hours sometimes with your colleagues, your coworkers, and these people become family. Yeah. And if you don't lift each other up, when you're having a tough day, no one's going to be there. Right. You know, and I know you were also a mentor to a lot of people when you were in MasterCard and not just within, but outside externally yes. as well. What were, you know, some of the most common problems that people came to you or what was some of the most common advice that they were coming to you for? Sure. Great question. <laughs> um, and, and just to, to add on to what you said, I, I think lifting people up and getting positive branding images out about your company, about yourself, about your peers, you need to do that regularly because as you said, in IT, especially once, once you start becoming a manager at high levels, 
your job every day is to deal with problems. You hear problems all day long. You hear about failures all day long. And you have to be able to mentally balance the amazing work that you're doing together amongst all these nits and nats that come up that can be a bit negative, right? There's always going to be the nits and nats, but I think it's important to get out there with a positive positive brand image for yourself, positive brand image for your, your company and your peers so that you're mitigating that negative noise. There will always be negative noise. That negative noise feels a lot louder when you're not counterbalancing it with positive noise. So uh, I think that's really important in the workplace um, to, to lead that way as well and uh, help people not focus on the negative. So in my mentoring sessions, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of, um, you know, how I would conduct my mentoring sessions and also skip level. Um, I would meet with individuals in my organization at, at the level that, that I manage at. Often I have managers reporting to me, but I want to make sure that I, I'm getting information from the folks that also report, you know, or individual contributors that report to different managers as well, so that I'm, I'm not getting things through rose-colored glasses, let's say, um, in, in those skip levels or in, in mentoring type meetings, the first thing I always want to ask is what's going well, what makes you happy in your day-to-day -day life, both your personal life, as well as your professional life. What do you enjoy? What gives you joy every day? So I think it's important to focus on that. Uh, make sure you understand the things that you do well and what you really enjoy. And I'll talk about why that's important in a moment. And then I'll go on to, once we get the, the happy stuff out of the way, then we'll, we'll focus on, okay, what are you not enjoying? Um, again, whether that's personal life, whether it's professional life. And, and I find that my approach is a little different in that I do bring up personal life because I think I don't, I don't want to know about all your personal business, but if there's something that's troubling you from a personal perspective that you'd like to talk to me about as a mentor or as your boss, I think it's important. As you said, we spend a lot of time at work. About half of our day is spent at work. The other half of our day, most of it's spent sleeping. There's a few hours in between where we get some personal life. And where that personal life may not be happy or, or healthy, it's going to affect that professional life and vice versa. If that professional life is not happy and healthy, it's surely going to affect your professional life. So I think there's a very strong yin-yang balance that you have to focus on between professional and personal. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll lightly dig into the personal side of what's not going well. I'm more focused on the professional side of what you, you may not be happy about. Then once we understand, you know, what are you good at? What, what gives you joy? What are you, you know, maybe having some struggles with what's maybe not giving you joy. Then we take the conversation to what are your career goals over the next six to 12 months? Then let's start talking two to five years. Um, as we talk through those career goals, I'll map it to what you said you do well, what gives you joy. I will also map it to what you said you, you, know, you may need to grow in or what you're having challenges with and what doesn't give you joy. If you, you know, tell me that working with security does not give you joy, it really frustrates you, but you're thinking about potentially taking a job in security because you had a job offer, I'm going to question as your mentor, why are you doing that? <laughs> you told me you don't enjoy you don't enjoy security, so why are you taking that job? Oh, they're going to give me a 5K you know, increase in salary. Okay, but you're going to be miserable. You said you don't enjoy that. Now, if you tell me because I want to learn more about security, why I didn't enjoy it was because I didn't understand about it. And I think taking this job will help me grow there. Okay. I support that. We can talk through that. But often when I'm mentoring people, unfortunately, money is, is a big driver. 
Um, listen, we've all fallen into that. We've all had a moment where maybe a, a job looked shinier uh, for whatever reasons and money may be part of it. But I really want to talk through whomever I'm mentoring or having a skip level with. Okay, money, great, 5K. What else? Because there's a lot of aspects to the job. There's the overall compensation package. There's the benefits package. Most importantly, the what I think you should be taking a job for. This is my humble opinion. And listen, I know money matters. I think you should be taking a job that you're going to learn from, that's exploiting what you're great at, giving you opportunities to show where you're great, but also challenge you, challenging you something that you may not be great at. Um, that was some of my evaluation these past couple of months. I said, you know what? What am I pretty good at? Uh, well, I think I'm, I'm decent at security. Um, I think I'm pretty good at managing teams. What am I not great at? I've worked with a company that has 50 years of technical debt. They've been in financial tech for a very long time. There's a lot of you know cleaning up previous technical debt um, versus I think it might be interesting to work in a, a whole different industry, a newer industry to see you know how are they living this life. Uh, and just seeing how a company approaches approaches problems differently. Um, I had some other things that I was thinking about as I went to get a new job. Um, I think it's important to evaluate, again, the, those things that you do really well. Also, making sure you're biting off something that you're not comfortable with. You know, I'm biting off moving to California. I'm biting off um, working in the gaming industry, which is totally different. Um, but uh, the things that I'm good at, uh, you know, I'm going to be managing teams around the world, which I've done extensively in previous jobs. And um, I'm going to be working over artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, it's a really cool environment that's very different from what I experienced in financial tech. That was really appealing to me. The money doesn't hurt either, right? Money is part of that decision. Benefits were part of that decision too. Um, when also when I'm mentoring, um, as we're talking about some of those goals that that folks wanted over the next six to twelve months, what we would do is focus on. Um, I had kind of a template, a goals template, where uh, you set smart goals for yourself, specific, measurable, blah blah blah. You know all the smart criteria, uh, realistic, timely. List out goals both professionally and personally. And goals are different from objectives. Objectives are what you've agreed with your boss to get done this year for your job. Those are your objectives. You deal with that. I'm not going to answer you on that unless you want me to. What I want to focus on are your professional goals. You said in two years from now, you'd like to be a manager. So let's break down over the next, next 6 to 12 months those small, specific, measurable, timely goals that you're going to work on that um, will help you get to that ultimate goal two years from now of becoming a manager. So, okay, you said you wanted to become a manager. How are you working on your networking? What thing do you want to become a manager of? Do you want to manage analysts? Do you want to manage development teams? Do you want to manage customer service? Do you want to manage data? I mean, there's oodles of different jobs in IT. What area do you want to focus on? Once you tell me what area you want to focus on, what specialty, um, maybe you said you want to become a better Java coder. Maybe you say, I want to learn more about security. Maybe you say, I, you know, I'm really interested in understanding big data and how to become a data scientist. Okay. Once I understand some of those goals or whether it's that managerial goal, then we'll start breaking it down to say, who do you know in these, in these spaces internally and in whatever company you work at or externally in the industry? You say no one? Okay, well, that should be one of your first goals. 
because right now you think you want to do this, I would suggest that you go interview people that actually do this and further determine if you really want to do this. A lot of people will get fixated in their mind that this is going to be the dream job. And to try some things before you know what your actual dream job is. Um, you know, I thought I would always like project management. I tried it for a year. Did not like it one bit. I love being a development manager. Um, it's subtle differences between those job roles. Uh, you really need to try things before you commit your life to it. I've seen people kind of blindly say, I want to become a data scientist and start taking courses for it. And you know, take a job for it immediately. And then once they get halfway through their course or a few months into the job, they're like, I don't like this. And then you feel stuck. And that's where, you know, you never want to feel stuck in a job and you don't want to be working in a job where you're really not enjoying it. So, um, you know, the first goal I would set with them is networking, getting to know people, and I would help them with connections if I could, uh, internally and externally. You know, maybe you could do some job shadowing, uh, see what that person does day to day, see if you would enjoy it, ask them if there's a side job that maybe you could do for them. Um, I encourage that a lot for people that are thinking about wanting to get into management. There's opportunities to manage things around you constantly. A great example is you, Ethan, deciding to create your own podcast and figuring this all out by yourself, right? You could have said, I absolutely want to do a podcast. I'm a podcaster now. How you've approached it is you've, you've built layers and you did your first podcast. You kind of, you told me, you know, before when we were speaking offline that you took some speaking classes and kind of recorded yourself during speaking so that you could get comfortable with, with how to speak on these kinds of podcasts and listening to yourself, right? That's, that's what building these goals is about is kind of chipping away the layers to get to your ultimate goal. Um, and, and taking opportunities to, to build those skills before you say, I am now this thing. So, um, you know, I would encourage people how I started flexing some of my management skills uh, when I was at MasterCard before I was explicitly in, in a managerial role. I joined business resource groups. Um, there were voluntary groups for certain sections of, of stakeholders at MasterCard. Um, I became a treasurer for the Women's Leadership Network. I became one of the leads in the um, Pride LGBT group. Um, so I would organize informal kind of things within MasterCard. And I was focusing some of those managerial skills. And I was building strong networks as I was doing that. Now there were people around MasterCard that were seeing me lead things. They weren't project related, but there were other things where they were seeing my leadership skills. So exemplify those skills, get those skills before you're an official job. Um, you know, some of the, the problems that I dealt with, uh, you know, listen, I'll be frank, and this is something that people know me for, so I'm pretty transparent. A lot of challenges with women in tech, um, just feeling like sometimes their voices weren't heard, feeling like they were getting overlooked for um, promotions, feeling like they weren't getting paid equivalently. Um, some, some tears, <laughs> not going to lie. And that was always an offer to all of my mentees and, and still is. If you're having a tough day and you're feeling like you're going to go off on your boss or you feel like, you know, you, you might get a little teary eyed or you're really anxious about some speech that's coming up. Give me a call. Let's meet. Let's have coffee. You can practice that speech in front of me three times. I'll act like the jerk in the audience that you think is going to ask you that tough question. If you feel like you're, you know, you're having a tough moment and you want someone to talk it through, I would much rather you let out your feelings to me versus you 
unfortunately letting your feelings spill out to your boss. It's always much better if you have that conversation with a trusted peer or mentor and try to get the emotional bit out with someone you trust first so that then you can get to the more strategic way to approach your problem before you actually get in front of your boss. So I offered that service and I still do. And um, it's been taken up quite a few times. <laughs> um, and thankfully so. I've, you know, I've had mentors in my life where I've had to use that too. Um, when it came to, you know, women in tech or there were quite a few men as well that felt like they were being overlooked for that position or, um, that their voice wasn't being heard. You know, a lot of times I would have a conversation with them kind of evaluating themselves before we assumed the rest of the world is against us. It's easy to say, ah, that's their fault. I didn't get promoted. That's easy to say. What's harder to say is what can I maybe have done differently that would have nailed that promotion? Um, you know, how are you promoting yourself internally and externally? Like, in every single company, any time a promotion is considered, usually it's not just your direct boss that gets to make that decision. Usually it's their boss and potentially other bosses around the table that need to nod their head whenever they say, yep, Tammy, she deserves that promotion. If there's a single head around the table that says, I don't know her. She hasn't done anything for me. I, I don't think she's more deserving of the promotion than Billy over here who works for me. You're not going to get that promotion. It's very, very important. And it comes down again to that networking and positive brand imaging and making sure people know the good work that you're doing. So when the promotion conversation comes up or that compensation conversation comes up, you have more supporters around the table saying, absolutely, Tammy deserves that because I saw her do XYZ for this committee. I saw her do ABC for this project. That's when you start seeing your career uh, snowballing in the right direction. So there was a lot of, you know, introspective conversation that happened during those mentoring sessions as well. And where do you see, you know, the industry moving in the next five years? With uh -huh. that, there's been so much talk about women in security. I think a lot of companies are also really getting behind it. But where do you see all this going? And if we're five years from now, today, how would you like the industry to look like? Sure. We've made a lot of progress. I want to start there. Um, you know, I've been in IT almost 20 years now, not, not as young as I once was. <laughs> um, in that 20 years, I'll tell you, I've, I've witnessed a lot of change. You know, when I first started in IT, I was often the only female at the table. Um, and often that table was surrounded by certain ethnicities and, and, you know, certain affluencies. Um, I've seen that change a lot over the past 20 years. Now there's two or three women at the table of 12. <laughs> um, the stats are interesting, right? When you look at, um, IT in general, the, and the stats can vary, uh, depending upon which, which surveys you look at, you know, can be anywhere from 15 to 20% female penetration, uh, although females make up roughly 51% of the overall society. It doesn't mean that any industry needs to necessarily align directly with society breakdown, right? I, I fully appreciate that. Um, but I think we can do better. I know we can do better when it comes to security. Uh, you, you know, stats, again, they, they hover depending upon what you look at, but often in security, it's quoted uh, 8 to 12% female. That's pretty low. Um, and I've definitely witnessed it in, in my time. 
uh, that, you know, I just went to a security conference um, a month or two ago and the, the room had probably 150 people and I would dare to estimate 20 to 30 of them were female. It's too low. That's just too low. Um, what I'd love to see people do right now to your point, to help us as, as we hope to see more improvement over the next five or so years. Uh, bring a friend with you. One, please go to meetups. Whether you're a female, whether you're a person of color, whether you're uh, a person of, you know, whatever gender, um, go to meetups. Representation matters. You being there matters. Um, bring a friend with you, bringing more people and demystifying that it's going to be a room full of guys is, is great. Helping be part of that demystification by bringing gals with you or, you know, more people of color with you or, or whatever, just bring more people with you so that they can get the experience, get the knowledge and, and hopefully feel more comfortable to come to more of those types of meetups. Be the change that you wish to see in the world. Be that positive role model. I get very nervous before I go to speak in front of crowds. People don't necessarily see that. I wouldn't think that. <laughs> <laughs> people, people think I'm an extrovert because by the way that I present, what people don't see is that I've been shaking and sweating uh, probably one to two days before I've gone up on that stage. I've presented that speech to myself and probably to at least one or two peers, uh, to myself probably 10 to 15 times, to my peers at least a couple of times. There's hours of effort that goes into that 15 to 30 minutes of, of going on stage, hours of preparation beforehand. I work hard so that it looks decent when I'm on stage. Um, Being that change that you wish to see by being that positive role model, going to speak at these conferences, um, lifting others up around you, I think that's how me and you can make a positive change. Um, what will it look like in another five to 10 years? I hope more diverse. And, and I mean that in every way. Um, more non-binary gendered folks or transgendered or who cares about gender, frankly, all the folks. That's what I want, all the folks involved. Um, I hope that we get to a point, and I, I don't think we'll be there in five years. I think this will take 10, 20, 50 years, although it pains me to say that, to a point where hopefully we don't have to focus on so explicitly needing diversity. It just happens. But until we get there, we do need to focus on it. And, um, you know, it was, it was interesting. I went out uh, for ice cream with some of my um, friends in St. Louis. I was just there last week uh, back in my hometown meeting with some, some friends. And um, we were talking and, you know, one of the female managers said, I had to tell the recruitment firm three times that I need more than one female in my candidate slate. Uh, she was receiving nothing but uh, mostly male CVs mostly white male CDs. Um, she said, no, that this just isn't good enough. And they said, well, you know, you had one, one female CV that you reviewed, so you can check off that I, you know, I've done my best to have a diverse candidate slate, which is actually a requirement at her work. She has to say that I, I have considered a diverse candidate slate. She says, yeah, I know I could check that box, but I'm not going to because I don't feel like we've really considered a diverse candidate slate. I just posted, um, 
I read a lot of industry news and I just posted an article a couple of days ago on LinkedIn and Twitter uh, that statistically, if you only have one woman across your, your candidate slate that you're considering, statistically, it's almost non-existent that she'll get hired. The, the statistical consideration of her getting that job, very, very, very low. So I, I, I'm listening to my friend tell this story and she used the representation of that article. She only had one person and that person wasn't quite the right fit for this job that was a female. She had loads of male candidate CVs that, that had qualifications, but she pushed back to the recruiter and said, nope, I want you to get me at least two more females, just two more females in the slate so I can consider, I just wanna make sure that I have a decent balance. When you've given me one female out of 30 CVs, that's not right balance. Um, so they did, they came back with two more female CVs and one of those female CVs was just off the charts, absolutely what she wanted, right? But she had to take some sacrifices to do that. One, she had to put her neck on the line with the recruiter to say, no, I'm not going to just check that box and take the lazy way about it. I want you to do better. We know better. So do better. She had to wait a little bit longer to fill her role because she took the time to find a diverse candidate slate. But in taking a little more time, by pushing a little bit harder, by asking the question of, can't you find me just a couple more different people to include in this pool, she found a really great candidate. That's what I want people to do too. Just that's, take a second to ask the question. That's really interesting because obviously I'm a recruiter, right? Yeah. So, so listening to you say that for me, it's something I agree a hundred percent I've taken on so many roles where when I go out to market, my job is to find the best candidates in the market, right? And I would say one of the unfortunate things is there's still a lot of hiring managers or HRs who look at the paper just to look for keywords. They're not willing to look at what's beyond that. So when it comes to presenting women Firstly, there are very few women available. Secondly, if people are only willing to look at keywords and yes. look at what they have, they almost always want a hundred percent fit. You're never going to find that diversity. You're never going to yeah. find that many options. So it comes, it's, I think it's a symbiotic relationship. People yes. need to work together and realize it takes effort from both sides yes. to make that change. So yes. thank you for sharing that information. That's yes. so important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, you know, hopefully listeners, whether you're a hiring manager or whether you're someone who's looking for your next role, just know that, you know, that there's a lot of work that will need to be put in to make this change, but it is happening. Yeah. And it's all about just talking about it. And perhaps if you know someone who's not yet on this train, Get them on. Yeah. And lift each other up, right? Write that recommendation for your friend on LinkedIn. You know, vote her or him to, to help them have a positive brain in the industry too. I think it's important that we all help each other have more visibility. And just before I let you go, if there's one thing that you want people to take away from today, what would it be? Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that can apply to so many aspects of your life. When you get comfortable, you get comfortable. And you don't pay as much attention to things. You don't you don't grow as much. Um, you know, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is applying toward that job that maybe you're only 50% qualified for, but applying for it anyway because you have skills that you can translate into that job. 
don't, if you're applying for a job that you're 100% ready for, are you doing it? You're not going to grow from that. Apply to something that you're not fully ready for. And don't discount yourself. Don't assume I'm not good enough for that. I've done that in my life. Do a lot more when you challenge yourself and say, you know what? I may not be fully ready for that, but I'm going to throw my hat out there and let them know that I think I'd like to try it. Put your hand up for, for that job that no one else wants to do. That you think, you know what, I think I can make a positive influence there. It's not going to be easy, but I think I can make a positive influence. That's going to stand out a whole lot more to your company or to other companies versus taking the easy route, doing the same thing that you've done for 10 years. You know you're going to do it well because you've done it for 10 years and done it well all 10 years. You're not going to grow any further and you're probably not going to stand out from that. Do something different. Be bold enough to change your job. Be bold enough to put yourself first. That's what I want people to take away. Tammy, thank you so much for your time today. That was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Women in Security podcast brought to you by Morgan McKinley. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. My name is Lee Fintan and we'll chat soon.